0: Thanks David. And now I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to Ezekiel chapter 34. For the beginning of 2017, we've started a series in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. We looked at the the beginning of it last week in chapters 1 through 3. We said last week that we'll kind of jump back and forth throughout the book. It's one of the longest books in the Bible, so even spending six weeks in the book of Ezekiel is not much time, and we kind of have to pick and choose uh, what aspects we'll cover. And so we'll kind of jump back and forth from history to prophecy, history to prophecy. But we as a church have a pattern of taking the beginning of a year Um, to consider what is our mission statement, to love God, to care for one another, and to communicate his word. We get that in part from Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets in Matthew 22 when he was asked what's the greatest commandment. He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then he said that that doesn't just summarize the law, that summarizes all of the law and the prophets so that we should be able, when we're reading any part of the Bible, um, to read it in such a way that we ask, how is this, what is this teaching us about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind? And what is it telling us about loving our neighbor as ourself? That if we're not being drawn in the study of Scripture towards a greater love for God or a greater love for people, then we're doing it wrong. We're missing the point. We're misunderstanding what God is trying to tell us in His Word. And so every year we go to a different part of the Bible and reconsider those basic things of loving God and loving one another in communicating his word. And so we're doing it now from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, But just to summarize a bit, in case some of you weren't here uh, last week, just the historical context of where we are, Ezekiel's pretty unique in a point in time in which he lives because catastrophe has struck in the nation. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon have come and they've sieged the city. And in doing so, They didn't immediately conquer it, but they were able to take thousands of people with them and take them into exile back to Babylon, and they took all of the ruling class. They only left behind the poorest of the poor, and in doing that, they also went into the temple, and they took almost all of the furnishings of the temple and took them with them back to Babylon, and one of the ways that they mocked all of those exiles was as they were traveling from Israel to Babylon, they were saying to them, why don't you sing us one of your songs now about what it's like to be in the temple and what it's like to make your sacrifices, as a way if they could get them to sing those songs to then just drive the point home to them that they were the victors, that they were the superior. And, and everyone in that day would have understood that not just in political con- terms, but in spiritual terms, that their God was the God. Babylon was the king. They were in charge, and they even defeated the temple. Ezekiel was one of the exiles taken from Israel to Babylon. And he was also trained up until that point to be a priest. And so for him, everything changed. He spent his whole life part of a priestly family, taught all about the temple and what it was like to lead worship for the people of God. And then he was sent off into exile. So everything he'd been preparing for and thinking about completely had to change because now he was hundreds of miles removed. The temple had been desecrated. And so he had a degree that didn't have a lot of prospects for finding a job. And so God reassigned him from being a priest to being a prophet. And that's what we looked at last week in chapters 1 through 3. God gave him a vision and said that he was going to be a spokesperson now for God to the people of Israel and try to help them interpret what was going on around them. Why are they in this experience of exile? And what is God communicating to them? So he has this incredibly dramatic vision in chapters one through three where even if we tried our best to draw it out, what he describes for us, it's kind of hard to do because he just sees something so amazing, but it culminates ultimately in him seeing a throne and God on his throne and God on his throne even in Babylon. And it's this way that God spoke to his broken heart and said, I know you're far away from family. You're you're somewhere you don't wanna be and now you have to think about a career you've never even planned for. But I want you to know I'm still God and I'm still on my throne and you can trust me and I am with you through anything. So that's the situation for a couple of years. But then in the chapter before what we're about to read in Ezekiel 33, he gets a report from someone in Israel. So he's hundreds of miles removed. He's preaching to the exiles. But a report comes to him in chapter 33 that says, everything we feared has now come true. And it's not just the furnishings that have been taken out of the temple. They're no longer just outside of Jerusalem, but they've in fact conquered it and they've destroyed it. The city is destroyed. The walls are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And so there's two halves to Ezekiel, everything that he was saying up until that report and then everything he starts to say after that report. So, last week we talked about when catastrophe strikes. And the first point of today is, well, when catastrophe strikes again. Because he gets this report that what they've experienced in exile is not, it's not just going to be a short-term trip. That they're going to get to go back from. This is now the new reality that they all have to cope with. But therefore, we could expect now when we go to chapter 34, I mean, this is just going to be a really sad chapter, Right? Something that was already bad, a report has come, and it sounds like things have even gotten worse. But in an amazing way, in a way we can only explain by God himself, Ezekiel 34 to the end, the the majority of it in tone is hopeful. It's saying this God who's still on his throne gives us reasons to have hope even when catastrophe strikes again. So we're going to read now the first 16 verses and then we'll jump down to read the end. So this is the first prophecy we have recorded after Ezekiel gets the news that Jerusalem has been sacked. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you've ruled them. And so they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. "...for thus says the Lord God, Behold I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land." And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Then jump down to verse 24. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace, and banish wild beasts from the land, so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness, and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season, and there shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hands of those who enslave them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations." nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall not be more consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God declares the lord so that's what we conclude for now so here's this amazing promise of god when catastrophe has struck again and if it was left up to the people they have no strength in and of themselves no ability in and of themselves to fight back and to regain anything that's been lost And so if the story of salvation was a story of God waiting in the heavens for us to do what we need to do to get our act together and maybe do enough that we could impress him or get him to act on our behalf, then this chapter would be very, very different. Because whatever would be needed for them to do or required of them, they would no longer be able to do. All of their resources have been exhausted or destroyed. But the good news of the gospel is that God is not just waiting for us to do something, but he is a God who takes initiative. That as Ezekiel saw God on his throne and he saw him in all of his power, he now hears about not just his power, but his goodness. That he says, even the shepherds who've been given responsibility, the people who were in charge and who were supposed to protect those who are weak and those who are vulnerable and instead of doing that they just took things for themselves and they left people more vulnerable eventually this announcement comes by God where he says I'm gonna come myself I'm gonna come and seek the lost I'm going to come and bind up the wounds of those who are hurt no longer mediating through someone else but that he himself Will come. This is the, the great shift in the Old Testament where now the, the questions of when and how and who is going to do this. Who will be the Messiah that comes to fulfill the promises that are here? But because God is willing to take the initiative, because he's not just waiting to act on us, but he actually sees their weakness, he sees their inability, he sees their frailty, And he's moved in compassion to respond to that. There's good news. There's a hope. There's a future. And so, yes, it's hard when catastrophe strikes. But when God chooses to save, when he chooses to act and to initiate, that same God that he saw up on the throne and there was no one above him and no one stronger than him, when God chooses to intervene and to say that he himself will come and do it, well, then who can stop him? Who can tell him no, you're not allowed to go? No, they're just not worthy of it. They don't deserve it. No, no, no. If He chooses as the greatest, as the strongest, as the best, to save and to come in His own terms and in His own way to bind, to seek, to save, to heal, to restore, there's no one above Him that can stop Him. He's God. He's the powerful one. He's also the one who's even more affected by our sin than we are. He describes what the shepherds have done and describes his, the brokenness of his own heart, that they've not carried their responsibility well. But at the end of the day, our sin always hurts God more than it hurts us. We have an amazing way to rationalize our behavior. Sometimes we, we think of human beings as rational, and more often than not, what sociologists tell us is we're not rational in that we make rational choices but we rationalize, <laughs> and so when we make choices, we then try to find ways to explain them, and we have a profound capacity to explain our behavior in all kinds of ways. Things that it, when we see other people do them, they shock us, and we say, how, how could someone even think of that or do that? I mean, just in, in the news of this past week, if you've been following the trial in South Carolina of Dylan Roof presenting himself and not having any legal representation but to explain in some way how he could walk into a prayer meeting and execute people and there just seems to be no effort no remorse, no regret, no guilt no ability for anyone else to break through mentally and say don't you see how horrible this is? and there there does not at this point seem to be any recognition of the guilt and the wrongness of it or if we see people live recording, abusing someone over a period of time. And again, say the judge just said a very basic look. Like, Where's your basic human decency? Was that one of the questions that the judge posed for the teens in Chicago. Just this, how, how could you even get to the point of doing this? It's something about us as human beings is that we find an ability to rationalize to not feel guilt, to not feel regret over the things that we do. And so we need to see just how ugly our sin is and the God who loves us and cares about us, he never rationalizes away our behavior. He sees it most clearly. He sees it in 2020 all the times. He understands exactly what's going on. But he, in seeing it clearly and understanding it fully, chooses to have compassion and mercy, to extend grace and forgiveness if he chooses to do that who can stop him from doing that no one can because it's not based on misinformation no new evidence can be introduced if he chooses to reach down and to save he's the one who has all the power to do it i think of an example just uh, I, was, I think it was about two years ago now as a softball game between two teams i believe it was in the upper northwest where it was the ninth inning and there were two people on base and they brought in one girl who had sustained an injury earlier in the game, but they said, we just need a hit and we just need you to get on first. And if you get on first and you get that hit, we win the game. And so she went up there and she hit a home run. But they realized very quickly she couldn't make it to first base because the injury that she'd sustained earlier in the game was in fact worse than anyone thought and she had a torn ACL. And so looking at that, there's an option of substituting someone in for a game in that scenario. So the manager could have said, you've got to come out, and we're going to bring someone else in. But if you do that, then you only get awarded the next base. So basically, not a home run anymore, just first base. But she could not make it in her own strength. And her team could not do anything apart from that substitution. But what could happen was if someone on the other team said, we're gonna help you out. And so the pitcher who just threw the pitch and got a home run hit off of her went toward her with another person and they both grabbed her by the arms and said, we're gonna help you get across all the bases. And here's the thing, there's no rule against that. Why? Well, because when people make rules, they don't assume that you'd ever do something to advantage the other team in a competitive sport. So you don't get penalized if you yourself are willing to suffer a loss so that someone else can get a gain. So her own team could not come and pick her up and say, we're going to make sure your foot touches every single base and this gets recorded for what you do. But the other team, if they chose to do it, yeah, there's no rules against it. And so they did in compassion to say, this is what you did you earned this you hit it and we're going to help you get all the way across and that's a beautiful picture that our God who is the one who sees our sin the most clearly who knows fully the depths of it and why it happens and why we do it and how we could have chosen different things and the other alternatives that we had. but he is also the one then who when he chooses to save there's no rules against it no one can come to him and say wait a minute you're not allowed to do this But in his freedom, in his goodness, if he has compassion as he looks down on the people and sees the vulnerable and the broken and the hurt and doesn't look at them with this long list of, well, here's what you did to get in that situation. If you just wouldn't have done that and you just wouldn't have done that and you could have easily just beaten them up verbally over the predicament that they were in. But in his power and his goodness, he steps down and chooses to save them. But even that analogy doesn't quite go as far as what the gospel tells us. So I invite you now to turn to the gospel of John, chapter 10. Or those of you familiar with your Bible, as we were reading through Ezekiel 34, you might have already been thinking about what Jesus said in John, chapter 10. <clears throat> How he picks up on this promise of the shepherd coming and that God himself would be the shepherd who would take care of us. In John, chapter 10, this is page 896, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. And then we'll jump ahead to verse 27. This is what Michael read as we were singing in worship. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What amazing promises. The good news that Ezekiel proclaimed that God himself would come and bind up our wounds and be the shepherd of his sheep, Jesus repeats in the same phrasing to say, yeah, the other ones who came, when, when difficulty came and a wolf came, you knew they were a hired hand because they ran as fast as they could. But since I'm here and I'm not a hired hand, I'm not running. And so what we see here is even more when God chooses to save, but when catastrophe strikes the Savior. When there's a threat against the Savior who's come to be the shepherd, he says, You'll know that I am the good shepherd because I will lay my life down for the sheep. And so here it's not just the choice to grant forgiveness but the choice to grant forgiveness and healing and protection and to receive the catastrophe that would have come upon you and me. Saying there's a wolf coming and that wolf is coming after the sheep. And it's not just that he eliminates the wolf, but that he experiences the catastrophe upon himself that was coming for those who were vulnerable and who were weak. And so that's where the softball game doesn't even quite go far enough because there's generosity in simply picking someone up and taking them around. It's a whole other thing to say if there's some way that my ACL could be torn so that yours could be whole, that's the choice I'm making. And we look at that and say, wow, not only are you now choosing just to grant forgiveness, but you're also choosing to absorb the pain. You're not just granting healing, you're taking on the disease. And so again, why would He do that? Well, He says it there later in the chapter. So that you and I would feel secure. So that you and I, if we would ever doubt for a moment how much He really loves us and to what extent He really is willing to forgive our sins. say, everything that He had to give, He was willing to give. Everything He had to take, He was willing to take. Everything that was needed to be done for your salvation and mine, for the prophecy to be fulfilled, for hope to be restored in the midst of catastrophe was done. And so if there is no power above him, and there was no cost that he wasn't willing to take, then you and I are supposed to be strengthened in our minds and our hearts and our spirits to say he really loves us like that. Who else loves us like that? Who else, out of their own generosity and capacity, would give in that way and can keep that kind of a promise to you and to me? And so we gather to love him. And we, as the quote is on the back of the handout from 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. Why do we exist? We exist to proclaim this love. Where else will you hear that the God of the universe became the shepherd of the sheep in the flesh to protect us and not just protect us, but to lay down his life for us. There's all kinds of things we do as a community of believers to help our world and to alleviate stresses and pain that exists. But so many of those things will continue on even if we disappear tomorrow. But where can someone go and hear that the God who made them entered into human history to die for them. They won't hear that in just being given a meal at a shelter or given a nice warm jacket in a cold winter. Those are good things. But where will they hear not just good news for this life, but the hope of eternal life? That's our message. That's ours to proclaim. That a vision given to a prophet on what had to be the darkest period of time in his life, light broke through and it shined. And then in a, in a personal way, in Christ coming himself, that that light has come into the world and that we have a message of hope for those who are vulnerable, for those who are weak, for those who are suffering, for those who've been left out and discarded. And so we proclaim our love for Him as a response to that great love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want with all of our heart and soul and our mind to worship You, to love You, because You are the one who with all of Your plans and purposes and everything that was required for our salvation You were willing to give, not in part, but the whole. And so we thank you that you first loved us. We thank you that you are the God who takes initiative, who doesn't sit around and wait for us, but who pursues us and comes after us and reveals yourself to us. We thank you that when everything around us looks like it's falling apart, you give us reasons to trust that our anchor is solid and sure, And that what we need the most in your love, we can be confident in. That when we doubt almost everything else, you give us the assurance that in your hands, no one can snatch us out. We thank you for the security that that brings us. And we pray that that would overflow in thankfulness in our hearts and in a desire to love you back with all of our heart, our souls, and our mind. In your Son, our Savior's name we pray. Amen.